This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology. Are you or one of your colleagues doing great neuroscience? If so, then we encourage you to apply for the prestigious Eppendorf and Science Prize for Neurobiology, an international prize which honors young scientists for outstanding neurobiological research based on methods of molecular, cellular, systems, or organismic biology. Submissions are due June 15th. Visit science.org slash Eppendorf to apply today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for August 25th, 2017. I'm Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, Sam Smits talks with us about the gut microbes of modern hunter-gatherers and how they compare with the rest of the world. And Jen Golbeck is back with the monthly book segment. She talked with Vivian Evans, author of The Emoji Code, The Linguistics Behind Smiley Faces and Scaredy Cats. Our online news roundup will be back next week. At this point, you probably know we all carry around microbial helpers on the insides and outsides of our body. And the differences in these populations from person to person, particularly in the gut, are long-term. But have our gut microbiomes gotten more diverse over time, less diverse over time? As people move around, as diets change, What was the ancestral gut microbiome population like? Sam Smits and colleagues compare the resident microbes in the Hadza population of Tanzania with people from 16 other countries to try to answer this question. Welcome, Sam. Thank you. Okay, so let's start with the Hadza. What makes them so special? So before I begin, I really want to just take a moment just to thank the Hadza for being so gracious and open in participating in this study. The Hadza are one of the last full-time hunter-gatherer populations in all of Africa. Humans have spent more than 75% of our history living as hunter-gatherers. And so our main motivation of the study was identifying what might be the representative ancestral microbiome and what might have looked like. And the Hadza are probably the best approximation of this for us. The Hadza way of life is disappearing rapidly. And so understanding the microbiota is really timely for us. Well, all of this is predicated on the idea that our microbiomes are inherited, that there's, you know, we have one that fits where we live and it, our parents have that too, and the Hadza have something different. So how do we inherit our gut microbiota? We do know that we're sterile when we're in our mother's womb. You absolutely have no other microbes in your gut. And you first encounter your microbes as you're coming through the birth canal. Evidence is pointing to this being actually really important, this first encounter, because these microbes educate our immune system and provide a lot of capabilities for utilizing substrates like the mother's milk. Something actually that's really remarkable in our study, when we put all these data together, the infants from different populations actually look fairly similar to one another, likely due to the fact that they are consuming mother's milk. But as you age, 
uh, you continue to gather and accumulate more microbes, depending on where you live, individuals you interact with, and then, of course, your diet and lifestyle. And that's a major component that's different in the Hadza. Their diet is very different, and they also live in nature, you know, day and night. They're exposed to the dirt. They're exposed to the elements. They eat seasonally. Right. And I think I read that there's a lot of honey in their diet. Is that right? Yeah. So there there are seasons where honey is more available. So like during the wet season, for instance, honey is much more available to them. So when you think about our microbes, our microbes have co-evolved with us. And these microbes that we have give us incredible function. When you look at the Hadza population, they've actually also established relationships with their environment in that there is this honey guide bird. They're able to whistle to this honey guide bird, and this honey guide bird guides them to the honey, and they'll eat this honey, complete with the larva. So it's an incredibly nutritious source of food for them. And then they give the honey guide bird scraps. They've established this relationship you know, with the honey guide birds over many, many generations, and so have our microbes. You know, our microbes obviously have been vertically transmitted for across our entire history as humans, and they provide major functions, functional capacities, many of which we're probably unaware of still. So you actually got to go and visit some of these places for to see what their diet was like firsthand? Yeah, I was lucky enough to go out there. So the samples were actually collected by Jeff Leach, who did all the field work. And so I was to visit him uh, for about 10 days with a few of my co-authors and live with them. Uh, it was just once in a lifetime. And really, I mean, at this point, it really is, you know, once in a lifetime opportunity because their way of life is changing rapidly. Yeah. yeah so it was, it was fantastic. I'd, I'd encourage you to go if you ever have opportunity. Oh, yeah. Did you eat anything? Did you eat some of the honey? Did you eat some of what the locals were eating? Yeah. So, yeah, I was lucky enough to try out the honey. So I had honey. So there, I had some honey from stingless bees, which are, you know, really tiny bees. The honeys, it was very, there were a lot of flower-like notes. notes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Um, but then also there's a larva, right? So that was really interesting. Um, yeah. And then also the tubers. So it's typically women that do this. They sharpen these sticks and they dig about two feet deep to access these tubers. And these tubers are incredibly fibrous. The Hadza consume 150 grams of fiber on average per day. The typical American consumes 15. So, you know, Gram. grams, 15, grams. 15 like grams of fiber. One tenth. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. A large bulk of those fibers come actually from the tubers, which they eat year-round. Uh, they're so fibrous that they typically will heat them in fire. So they'll just throw these into fire like a log, and then you'll just peel off the skin and start eating it. What you did was you sampled from the Hadza and you sampled from other countries in the world. Can you talk about what your starting material was and kind of the analysis that you did on those materials? Yeah, so we relied on sampling and sequencing that had been performed by many different groups across the world. And this is really the first time where we're able to bring in together data that were previously incompatible. So there are compatibility issues when you consider bringing in sequencing data from different groups. So we were able to bring them together in a way that faithfully represents the differences between these microbiotas. And what we find is that the traditional populations segregate from the industrialized nations significantly. So you see a big difference in the kinds of microbes that are carried by the different populations? There is remarkable diversity differences between them. So the industrialized populations have significantly reduced diversity with respect to the traditional populations. 
And that obviously has major impact on functionality. And then another really interesting factor, the industrialized populations have enriched verrucomicrobia. So that's a family of microbes that actually feast on mucin. So mucin is the protective barrier that lines our gut. When you have lack of plant fibers, lack of nutrients for the microbes, they'll actually begin feasting on you. And we find that in the Western populations. And there are striking features where some microbes are absent from industrialized populations, such as the spirochetes, for which we have like absolutely no ideas to their functionality in, in the gut. And are those the ones that are seasonal? You mentioned a lot about seasonality uh, in your discussion. There are the Prevotella, spirochetes, and the Succinovibrio that are seasonal in the Hadza gut microbiome. In fact, they're the most volatile species. And those are the ones that turn out to be absent or virtually absent in industrialized populations. Okay, so here's the big, possibly unanswerable question, which is why do you think we don't have those variable strains? And, and what does it mean that our gut microbiomes are so different than the Hadza? Is it, does it matter? I mean, are we just suited better to the food that we eat? Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, obviously, and that, that's one that we can't necessarily answer with just these data. But I think the evidence is pointing towards this generational exchange of microbes. And so I was lucky enough to be part of this one study last year where we found that many microbes are vertically transmitted from mother to offspring. Placing these mice, in this case, on fiber-rich diets show that the microbes were able to be transmitted, vertically transmitted from mothers to offspring successfully. But when these mice were placed on fiber-deficient diets, these pups actually began to lose microbes. And over four generations, almost 75% of all microbes that were present, of all microbes that were present in the original population were completely gone. And so you can imagine something similar happening here, where we've changed our lifestyle within the last 10,000 years in industrialized populations really quickly. These microbes didn't have these niches that they had co-evolved with. And over generations, we continue to whittle down the microbial populations that we have. So is there some concern that we may one day need those microbes to help us with food of the future and they're no longer going to be around as these populations uh, join the industrial world? Absolutely. So there's major concern right now and a lot of work being put into understanding which bugs are the ones that we would want potentially or what bugs provide the functionality that we're missing currently. Some of the alarming data that's coming out is that we have this decrease in infectious diseases, cases of infectious diseases. We've been able to really deal with that within the 20th century. But one thing that we're finding is that there is this rise in chronic diseases like asthma, Crohn's, type 1 diabetes. And these may really be a result of having lost some of these functional capacities that these microbes provide or the education of our immune system that these microbes provide. All right, Sam, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. I'm Jen Gulbeck, and welcome to this month's book segment of the podcast. Today, I'm talking with Vivian Evans, author of the new book, The Emoji Code, The Linguistics Behind Smiley Faces and Scaredy Cats. 
Vivian, your subtitle uses the word linguistics with emoji. So are emojis language? Just to be clear from the outset, emoji is not a language. Emoji is is a system of communication. What basically makes something a system of communication is, in essence, uh, the use of a symbol, a physical representation that has a conventional meaning associated with it. And in that sense, emoji is similar to language. So English, for instance, has words, for instance, the word cat, which is made up of a a physical representation, three sound segments, that we put together and native speakers of English instantly recognise that as having a particular conventional meaning associated with it. But what makes something a language is that it has, in addition to a sophisticated uh, body of vocabulary, It, in addition, has, and this is the real hallmark of a language, it has a grammar system. So a system of rules that we just know, we acquire, and these allow us to combine words to make complex and sophisticated sentences, allowing us to express ideas. Now, in that sense, emoji is not a language. Now, that doesn't mean you can't give it a grammar system. You can't imbue it with with a grammar. And and in fact, some aficionados have done this. So there's a a London-based visual designer who has translated Alice in Wonderland. In the US, another emoji aficionado has translated Moby Dick into, get this, Emoji Dick, using emoji. I was going to ask if you had read Emoji Dick. That was one of my questions for you. I got a copy a few years ago, and it's a weird experience trying to read that book. It is indeed a bizarre experience attempting to read uh, Emoji Dick. Why do we need emoji when we have all these words and complex language that we can use to communicate when we're texting or emailing or posting online? The best way to answer this question is to to back up for a second and just think about the default mode of communication. So everyday social encounters, when we meet with uh, with people in the supermarket, colleagues at work, friends and, and family and so on after work. So in the, this kind of default mode of interaction, the face-to-face spoken interaction, we often think that uh, language is the key mover and shaker, the kingpin in our everyday world of meaning. But in fact, up to around 70% on some estimates of emotional expression comes from things like facial expressions, but also gesture, body language and tone of voice. And these cues are very, very important in allowing us to convey how we're feeling about something, what we're saying, how we're viewing the other person to share and get an insight into someone else's personality. Now, in terms of emoji, emoji is the uh, the analog. It fulfills the same kind of non-verbal communicative function uh, in text speak, in digital communication spaces. And it helps us nuance and modulate the meaning of the words. And in so doing, it helps us avoid what I refer to in the emoji code as the angry jerk phenomenon. And this is the idea. When you receive an email or another text-based form of digital communication from someone, you know to be otherwise calm and sane. They can often sound as if they're a complete shouty, angry jerk. And the problem is with text digital text, particularly in in short, abbreviated communicative uh, contexts like email and text messages and tweets and so on, is that the empathy is sucked out of the message by virtue of the digital text. And empathy is what drives effective communication. And this is the the real value of emoji, uh, I think, in terms of digital communication. So I'm looking right now at my most frequently used emojis here. And I have some smiley faces and some sad faces. There's some hearts, the thumbs up, which I use all the time. And, you know, certainly those are used for communicating feelings or messages. But what about this other one of my favorites, the pizza emoji? 
Is that communication? Yes, I think all emojis are useful for communication. I mean, when someone is sending uh, a particular kind, if they have a subset of favourite uh, emojis, what they're doing is they're using these pictograms, in essence, to express personality. And that's really, really important. I just saw an article come out that said we should stop using emoji in our work emails. And I use them all the time, mostly to avoid that angry jerk problem that can happen with email so often. So you tell me, do I need to stop putting emojis in my work messages? No, I I don't think so. There's, a, there's always a place for emoji. If the advice is to stop using emoji in work email, the analogous advice would be to stop making facial expressions, to nuance what your words say during meetings. Uh, and that's nonsensical. And this kind of advice fundamentally uh, misunderstands the nature of human communication. One of the problems is with emoji that because they, they are cartoon-like, they're often viewed by critics and so social commentators as being the equivalent to uh, an adolescent grunt. And indeed, one of the potential issues, particularly in professional contexts, is that emojis do look somewhat juvenile. And so there's an issue there for emoji designers. But that doesn't take away from the principle that they are very effective in any form of communication. Now, that said, any mode of communication, any context, and by that I also mean professional contexts, uh, that said, there is always a, a time and a place for the parsimonious use of emoji. You know, the advice I always give people is never rush into a an emoji relationship. Um, so there's an important etiquette, just like, you know, if you meet someone at a prospective date, you don't start leering and grinning and winking at that person. They would just think you're deranged in the same way you don't rush into the smiley faces and the winks and the so on, especially not in, in professional context. You need to get to know the person a, a little bit first. My main response to that question would be, there is indeed an important role, I think, for emoji in professional contexts in order to precisely avoid the angry jerk phenomenon. But the, the issue, the challenge is for software developers and visual designers to create a more professional looking set and suite of emojis that professionals would be uh, happier deploying in those sorts of contexts. Vivian Evans, thanks so much for joining us. The book is The Emoji Code, The Linguistics Behind Smiley Faces and Scaredy Cats. And that's it for this month. We'd love to hear your feedback at Books at All, the books blog at the Science Magazine website. And we'll be back again in September with another great book. Thanks for listening. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science. But did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.